Porrid Kenny is an Irish writer from County Kildare, but he joins me today from Limerick. He's taught English literature and creative writing, and he's worked as a journalist and scriptwriter for radio and for screen. His novels for young readers include the very well-received Tin and Pog, published by Chicken House, and more recently, the brilliant gothic stories, The Monsters of Rookhaven and The Shadows of Rookhaven. And from the music that's playing, you can probably guess what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking all things monsters, and so I'm very pleased to be welcoming Porig into the reading corner. Thanks for having me. You know, they say that a very good place to begin is the beginning. And so I'd like to start with beginnings. Um, in your author's note, when you talk about writing the monsters and, and shadows of Rookhaven, you say, I started with fragments, bits and pieces, strange images and disconnected phrases. I wonder if you can take us back to what some of those fragments were and maybe how they started to coalesce and become a story. I find in general, when I write a book, I'm kind of at the mercy of stuff that just mad stuff just pops into my head. It could be a phrase. It could be an image. For example, my first novel, Tin, uh, it started with an image of a, a man trying to sell a, ro- a mechanical boy to a childless couple at Christmas. So st- stuff like that happens. And then I follow the image. So in particular with the monsters of Rookhaven, I'm probably sitting here where I'm sitting today. And I had this image of two girls in a forest. It was a kind of dark velvet blue night. And they were both friends and they were both holding hands. And I thought, I just got this impulse to write a story about female friendship. I thought that'd be great. I had these two girls and then I realized, well, one of them is a monster and the other girl is human. So it started from that. So I thought, great, this is the beginning of my story. But where is it going to go? Um, so after a while, I started to say to myself, well, if one girl is a monster, the other girl is human. Clearly, they both must have families of some sort. So the girl who is a monster obviously lives with a family of monsters. So straight away, I had an image of this big house, big old mansion filled with monsters. And it started, the mansion itself started to fill up with the monsters. A woman made of spiders, a man who could transform into a gigantic bear, a man who's almost like a vampire. And then I I was kind of stuck for a bit because I needed a bit of dramatic impetus. And then this weird thing came into my head again. I had an idea. What if the monsters lived in this house, but they kept the monster locked up in the basement? A monster that they themselves were actually afraid of. And I realized, well, they have to have a good reason to be afraid of this monster. It's not the usual, like he can rip our limbs off, eat us, whatever, devour us. It has to be something weird and strange. And then I figured out that the, mon- the monster's name just popped into my head and the monster became Piglet. I thought, that sounds perfect, a lovely, ironic name. And then I realized, I know what Piglet can do. I know why they're afraid of him. And then suddenly, bang, the story just started to flow from there. So I was really lucky in that regard. And the the two girls that you're talking about, the image, they become Mirabelle and Jem in the story. And I suppose another thing that is propelling this story forward is Mirabelle's backstory, you know, who, where she comes from, how she fits in, who her mother is. And as we move further into the stories, who her father is. Was that there quite early, you know, her story? It wasn't. It's it's like there are some elements to my books that are always, that are there from the beginning, and then there are other elements that start to flow. I think, kind of go in blind, and and let the story dictate things to me. 
Um, I'll have ideas for major scenes and, and moments of catharsis. But then, of course, I get to a point in the story where I begin to say to myself, well, someone like Mirabel, she's obviously come from somewhere. There's obviously something different about her. How am I going to explore this? And it kind of all begins to flow from there and, and kind of slot into to place. I'd say about halfway through the story, I began to realize this is who Mirabel is. This is where she's from. And even her mother, the image of her mother came late in the story mm. as well. I want to talk a little bit about the setting. Uh, you've actually set this in a just post-Second World War period. And I wondered whether that was significant when we're thinking about imaginary monsters and real world monsters, if you like. Was that part of your thinking for setting it in that period? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, because because of rationing and because I and because of the grief people were going through. So there were different pressures. There was the pressure, economic pressure, rationing and providing for themselves, especially for the people in the village. And then there was the tension of grief that might have been released after World War II. People had, had lost people. So there was that to explore. So I, I think it's very important in any kind of story to have some kind of tensions and that either need to be resolved or maybe aren't resolved or, or lead to some kind of dramatic uh, moments. So in that sense, the World War II thing, the setting really helped. It gave it another impetus, another kind of drive as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're going to actually talk about the monsters in a moment. But before we get there, the title of the first book is called The Monsters of Rookhaven. And we all know that a haven is a safe place. And what we have in this house, in this safe place, are a family, to all intents and purposes, of monsters, all of whom would be considered to be outsiders in the world outside of Rookhaven. I'm just interested in how important this house is in terms of housing this group and the protection that it offers. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I hadn't realised, even as I wrote it, this house is really a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And I, I I didn't use the word sanctuary until the second Brookhaven book. So it's a sanctuary for these people. They're clearly not welcome in the uh, the outside world. And I always, you know, uh, kind of, facetiously say oh this is my uh covert uh brexit novel um <laughs> and I, I, I don't want to be too explicit about things but there is a kind of element of people being uttered by people in the outside world or people not being welcomed i suppose yes i see it as a sanctuary but um as far as i'm concerned they belong in the world you know there's odd and he travels around in his portals if ever a monster belonged in the world it's odd he loves to go everywhere and anywhere at a moment's notice and he should be free to do so that they're entitled to live in the world. And I, I know they have a, an agreement with the villagers, but they shouldn't have to have an agreement. They should be allowed to live in that world, you know? Mm-hmm, absolutely. And in the second book, um, where we have a character called Billy coming in, who is not a monster, he's actually welcomed into Rookhaven. Um, I think there's a phrase in there that to all intents and purposes says, we don't turn anybody away. Yeah. And the thing about Billy, though, is he's, he's half monster. Oh, I've given a spoiler away. He's half monster, uh, just like Mirabel. So that's how he manages to get in, really. They kind of half rec- they recognize him as one of their own to a certain extent. And the weird thing about Billy is I'm go- kind of going off track here a bit. But Billy came to me as a character about 10 years ago. I had an idea with this young boy who was half vampire and half human. But I couldn't use him. 
And then when I realized I had to come up with a sequel, I, I, I said to myself, I need somebody that kind of symbolizes or becomes a metaphor that's important in this book. And in this book, I think the most important metaphor for me is people who are considered outsiders, not considered part of one family or not considered part of another community. And Billy was perfect for that. Let's talk a little bit about each of your, or, or some of your monsters anyway. The sort of patriarch of the family is Enoch. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, Enoch, he's a very severe kind of patrician type of character. A bit too fond of himself. A bit too used to being in charge, I think. And I just wanted a, a dark kind of patrician character to be there, be in charge of the family. But I don't I don't like the fact that he's in charge of the family. I would prefer someone like Eliza to be in charge. You know, mm-hmm. Aunt Eliza, who's made of thousands of spiders, because I think she's a bit more compassionate. I'm not saying that Enoch isn't compassionate, but she's a bit more compassionate and will listen to people. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of uh, not so much Mirabelle and Jem teaming up against Enoch, but being a kind of counterweight to that patriarchal kind of structure that he kind of symbolises. And it's good that even though he is in charge, he is still frightened of the monster in the basement. So he can't completely rule, as it were, without any <laughs> anything impinging on his uh, decision-making. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned Aunt Eliza. What a wonderful image that is of a a sort of human figure created just by lots of spiders that uh, move themselves into position and recreate her physical appearance. And then a character that I'm extremely fond of and who we learn a lot more about him in Shadows, the second book, is Odd. Tell us a bit about Odd. It's always my secondary character suddenly that that I begin to grow and that I begin to love. So Odd... He looks 12 years old, but he is actually 300 years old. And he could travel anywhere he wants with a magic portal that he can just make appear with a click of his finger. And there's a a lot of backstory behind some of the characters that isn't really explored in the first book. But I expand on Odd and Shadows of Brookhaven. And I learn to love him even more because of how he reacts to things. And his traveling through portals becomes a metaphor for him being unable to come to terms with things like grief and loss. So when things get too much emotion for him, Odd will go, oh, right, that's, I'm off. Mm. And he's gone, you know. That travelling enables him eventually also to confront some of that difficulty. Yeah, and that's the thing. He's constantly trying to escape it. And eventually he realises, you know what, uh, I'm going to fiss up to this now and, and, and uh, come to terms with it, I suppose, or try to come to terms with it. So his, his travelling helps him do that. Mm. And, I, and I can understand that tendency to want to run away from something and not face it i think that's why i really like god i we're all like that i'm kind of like that but he's he's got a, a lovely inner strength i think and and a loyalty to people like mirabelle especially which really endears him to me you've mentioned uh, the word metaphor quite a few times in talking about this one of the things that i really appreciated in the writing is that it's not laid on heavily that we're reading a metaphor for many different things. Um, and I think it was actually Ray Bradbury who said that yeah, if young yeah. writers would find those writers who can give them metaphors by the bushel and the peck, then they'll come to be better writers. Yes. To learn how to capsulize things 
and present them in metaphorical form. The minute you said metaphor, I said Ray Bradbury. Yeah, because I think it was about 10 years ago, I saw uh, an address he gave to a university in California or somewhere, and he spoke about metaphor, and especially how it was important to science fiction. Mm. And I was, I'd was i only started writing books at that time, and then it, it just clicked for me. I went, yes, this is what you do. You write about people, and I write about characters, and characters and people are very important to me. But if you're writing fantasy, you kind of embed a metaphor within your, your novel. And I firmly believe, especially in children's books, that kids, when they read a book, they'll know something else is going on beneath the surface. They'll sense the metaphor. They'll sense, the, and I don't want to use the word message, but they'll sense something is going on. It gives your, your, your book a bit of a musculature, a bit of strength, you know, rather than being something flimsy and throwaway. I do want to talk a little bit about Piglet and also the way in which both books are written, these different voices are within them. So we have Odd and Mirabelle and Jem and Billy's voices. But there are also some sections in each book that are written from Piglet's point of view. And these stand out as being written in the present tense in a different way. I thought that was really interesting. I wondered when and how, if you can remember, <laughs> finding that voice for Piglet came to you. Again, it just kind of happened organically. I was sitting down thinking about it. I, I construct paragraphs in my head, sample, almost sample paragraphs for myself that this will happen. I'll, I'll go through it and a line will appear. And then the piglet stuff started to appear in my head and it was in the present tense. It just seemed right. And I thought, oh, this is a bit risky. That's a bit strange. Will I get away with this? So I said, no, I'll try it anyway. And I tried it and it just worked beautifully because I see piglet. He's almost childlike. But he's incredibly, incredibly old. He's wise, but he's not wise. <laughs> but he can see everything and he can sense everything that's going on in the moment. And it's almost like he's outside of time. And that just worked for me. And he just knits everything together. I'd love to hear a little bit, actually, um, of Piglet's voice, if you could read some to us. Yes, yeah, I have a bit from Monsters here, which is a good example of what Piglet is like. So it's the first section from uh, Monsters of Brookhaven. Jem and her brother Tom have arrived at the house and Mirabel has already explained to Piglet that they've arrived. Piglet. Piglet revolves in blackness. He likes it here. He likes listening to Mirabel's voice, soft and warm and flowing gently into that dark like a glittering rainbow. Mirabel is like a light, as fierce as the light of stars. And when she goes, he misses her. But he knows she will be back, just as he knows many things without being able to put words to them. Sometimes Piglet feels like the moon, vast and shining. Other times he is like a speck of dust in the dark, lost, alone. But he is never afraid, ever. Piglet has never known fear. He has known hunger. He has known curiosity. But when it comes to fear, he has only ever known the fear of others. Piglet is dangerous, they whisper to each other. And Piglet doesn't understand the words, but he smells the fear. He can almost taste it. Fear tastes funny, not like meat. Piglet likes meat. He likes it most when it's warm. It's always tastiest when it's alive. Piglet listens now. Piglet is always listening. He hears every voice in the house, and because he hears them, he is never truly alone here in the dark. Tonight he has heard something different. The two new hearts Mirabel told him about are thrumming on the air. 
Piglet holds his breath. He listens hard. Piglet likes to know things. He knows more than most, having been here since, well, since what, what, what seems like forever. The two hearts are not like the ones he is used to. Piglet listens for a while and wonders what this means. Then he remembers he is hungry. So very hungry. Piglet is always hungry. He groans and rolls over in the blackness, trying to ignore the rumbling in his belly. He sharpens his teeth and claws. He yearns to be about in the world outside, out where the meat is, where the blood flows, warm and sweet and delicious. And because Piglet doesn't belong to the past, the present or the future, because he is beyond time, he sees things others cannot see, knows things others cannot know. And now he knows one thing above all for certain. Piglet knows that very soon he will be free. There's real menace in that. <laughs> and you manage to take us to these really menacing places, but then there's always a touch of lightness there, uh, lest it gets too dark. I want to talk a little bit about the second book, The Shadows of Rookhaven, and what the story is in this book. And it starts with something called The Great Configuration. This is an event that happens every 100 years. Tell us a bit about what that's all about. Great configuration. I'm not entirely sure, even having written it, but I, I just knew that if we have a family in the house of Rookhaven, family of monsters, then of course there's got to be families in other houses. So I thought to myself, something has to bring them together. So I thought this happens every 100 years. It's a sacred thing for them. It's almost like a monster's Christmas, I thought. And I thought that's the best way really to get them all together. Also into this story, we have a new hero and a new villain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Billy. Tell us about Billy. Yeah, Billy is, as I said, he's half human, half monster. He's important for me because he's even more of an outsider than anyone else in the book. And I responded to that. I felt a great sympathy and empathy for Billy. I mean, Mirabel, he does something that Mirabel and the family don't like. But you as a reader, you know that there's mm. more to Billy than Mirabel and Cole actually know about. Mm. That's the really important thing, yeah. isn't it? So the thing that's sort of uh, propelling the story along is this character who is trying to steal the shadows. Yeah, there's two characters in a way. One, the evil financial person with all the money, and then there's a, there's a man helping him. So there's a bit of a, a twist near the end of the novel. But you discover that the, I suppose the villain of the piece, he is trying to uh, do what he wants to do for kind of understandable reasons, but selfish reasons as well. And I, I like to have my villains, I like to have an element of them which you can actually understand why they're doing what they're doing. How would you describe the tone of your book? Tone is hugely important to me because I remember William Goldman, someone saying to William Goldman, the, sc the screenwriter, that he was, uh, he was a master of tone. And I, I love watching his movies because he controls the tone. He gets the, the humour, kind of dips on, in under maybe the, the adventure, the thrills, the comedy, the pathos. Tone, yeah, tone, and not just one single tone. All tones are important to me. And, and what I like to do is, is try and knit them all together. So you can have your funny moment, but it will dovetail nicely with the horrific, the horrific moment, maybe. Mm. Or, or the moment of pathos, or the moment of catharsis. So it's kind of like a... It's a weird musical thing going on, maybe. It's really interesting because the thing that leaves that feeling with us is as much about the tone as anything to do with, you know, what the plot of, of the story is. 
And I thought it was really interesting as you read the Piglet piece, which does, as you're reading it aloud, you realise how dark that is. And yet in another part um, of the story, we see Mirabelle feeding the carnivorous plants, which are like Venus flycatchers on steroids. And that's much lighter, even though essentially they are eating meat. (laughs) I like doing that. I like these strange, quirky moments. Or like you, I can have my strange, surreal, horrific moments, but they're undercut by a moment of recognisable humanity or humour. Mm-hmm. It helps bring balance to the whole thing, and 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 I think helps the reader kind of engage and feel more empathy for the characters and for the situation. Some people get very anxious about horror and children and children being exposed to horror, and I just wonder why it is as adults we feel so uncomfortable sometimes in exposing children to horror stories. I suppose we want to shield them from things. But as a writer, I always made a conscious decision of not wanting to shield readers because I grew up in a, in an era when you, you could watch the Doctor Who, for example, and the Tom Baker era, and there was very definite elements of horror in that. I remember watching that, and, and a lot of seven-year-olds I knew watched it, and it was no big deal. Children can handle a lot of stuff that adults, I think adults underestimate children. I want to write more consciously frightening stories now, but uh, you don't want to push it too far either. You don't want beheading mm-hmm. and limbs being lopped off. You can pull yourself back from the brink a bit and leave a suggestion of something terrible, maybe. And children respond to that and, and get it and know, I think they know their own limits as well. I did wonder whether, to some extent, uh, children experience it in a completely different way and just coming back to some of the greats of you know horror writing this time uh Stephen King I'm full of the quotes today because I was thinking about this as I was reading your book and he says that children tend to live in a dream state that we have as adults seem to have forgotten and he equates that I'm paraphrasing that dream state with a heightened sort of mental state And he makes that cross-connection between childhood and the strange powers and the paranormal that actually they're more open uh, to that than perhaps we are. We see different things in it. He's probably right. I mean, I read a lot of Stephen King when I was younger myself and I get a lot of where he's coming from. He's And he's a great writer for being able to remember what it was like to be a child. It's not just a quote that's true there, but his... His writing, his fictional recreation of childhood is, is spot on. To be filled with imagination and to believe in ghosts and monsters and to see strange things in the world that maybe adults don't see, because mm-hmm. um, he hasn't forgotten that. I don't want to use the, the Oreo cliche of saying, uh, re- reawaken your inner child or something like that. I think it's just a matter of remembering and leaving yourself open to seeing the world in a more open way and to, d- to be able to daydream. Mm-hmm. Some adults lose that, I think. I mean, I only ever started writing because I'm an obsessive daydreamer. I'm 51 years old now and I could be walking, going for a walk and I have dragons flying around inside my head. It just never stops. And it's it's probably my way of escaping, really. But I, I don't want to lose that. Uh, and kids have that, I think. So I want to think a little bit then about a sort of adult's perception of what's going on here. And again, I'm just going back to one of the things that Stephen King uh, writes about in his reflections on childhood is that the adult always has in their head 
knowledge of their finality that you know death is coming in a way that perhaps you don't have that as a child and when I came to read Shadows of Rookhaven there's part of that story where Odd where he's forced to confront something and he quotes from a friend of his in the past when he said it's the temporariness of things that makes them precious. So I do feel that in your stories there is this childlike acceptance of of this world but also you've brought into it this sensibility that really comes from an adult's apprehension of of the way things are. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's funny, I, I hadn't thought about the adult perception. I was trying to think of it from the child's point of view. But I was lucky because I, I wrote that that kind of thing through Odd's eyes. And Odd, he looks 12 years old, but he's he's 300 years old. And his first ever, because he's, a, he's actually immortal, his first ever experience of friend's mortality comes when he's 300 years old and he doesn't know how to process that. So he runs away from it. So we have a ostensibly 12-year-old boy who's actually a 300-year-old adult who can't deal with grief or or someone dying. So yeah, Odd helps me in, a, in that sense marry the two. It's interesting that he should say that. I'm interested to know what happens next with the monsters. Have we got a third book? Not right now anyway. It could happen. But if it does happen, I'm thinking, I think there's more to Mirabel's story. And there is possibly, my wife asked me this last week, and I said, look, I have a, I have a really good idea. One a humongous twist that you won't see coming. It's funny because exploring this world, uh, I was kind of filling in the pieces I, as I went along. And then when I finished Shadows of Rookhaven, I, I realized, well, there's one piece of the puzzle that's missing. And I know now what that one piece of the puzzle is. So someday maybe I'll write it. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. I thoroughly enjoyed reading both of these books and I'm so glad to have the opportunity to explore them with you in a little more depth. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nikki. It was an absolute pleasure. Cheers. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.